It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To the second official Lord of the Rings BFF. Uh, have joined us or not? Or not joined you guys? Well, you guys weren't here last week. No, not okay. last week. You weren't either, Mark, Marcus. Anyway, should we go around and just do names? Yes. And like that? Yes. And, um, I'm Randy. Bruce. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. This is so fast. Peer pressure is not a thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just copying everything I say. I'm Marcus. Nice Hi. to meet you. Hey, Marcus. Caleb. I'm Trent. <laughs> Nina. Wes. Kennedy. Okay. Cool. And about 15 other people that sometimes come. Oh, yeah. We'll be here. Yeah, we're actually short. A lot of people are sick today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm on double duty right now, unintentionally. So I figure if somebody comes in, this is the life of a small business person, by the way. So you're like, oh, great. I got to do emergency runs today. So my plan is if people come in and I got to jump up, I'm going to throw out crazy bombs, like things like, what was Gandalf? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. I can't wait. What about, what, what happened to Arwen after Aragorn died? You know, those kind of things. So. Yeah, hurry up, hurry up. So, all right, so last week we kind of introduced Lord of the Rings through working through like some of the first few chapters on this. This is mine, this is like my area, my field. I'm, I like C.S. Lewis, I like some of this kind of stuff. Flannery O'Connor, I enjoy her battle on the angle. But I really got introduced to the world of imagination. I don't, I don't like fantasy, by the way. And yet, I, I love Tolkien. Like he's both become my guy, right? Anything else I could care less about, you know. Even Narnia, sometimes I struggle with. But Lord of the Rings is like there's something on a different level. I know, I know. I'm saying you can edit all this stuff out. The rest of the world. Lord so the co-founder doesn't like Narnia. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just gotta work at it sometimes. But um, Tolkien introduced me into into reading, um, and I think that may be part of it for me. Is like, you know, I realized the the power of ideas, the power of imagination, and so he's always been my favorite fiction author, maybe even my my favorite author ever. Um, so David, we kind of jumped us in last week, and we started rolling. He's sick and not here, so I'm going to decide, and plus it's crazy, and we're going to kind of plan B this with the craziness of the night. But I thought this would actually be a good opportunity to kind of back up a little bit, you know, while we're waiting on some people to catch up, everybody's sick and stuff like that, and really kind of set the stage for this book. Because I think, you know, I think you lose a lot in just jumping into a book like this and reading it like any other book. Whereas, really, Tolkien wrote this out of some deeper urges and ideas and stuff like that. Um, in fact, if you, if you know anything about the ways that he started writing The Hobbit, right? I mean, he was just bored, right? One day, just all of a sudden, he said, the sentence almost came to him. In the hole in, a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he was like, I don't even know what that is. You know? <laughs> he talks about in, this, in his essay on fairy stories. In fact, he's like, you know, anybody that really creates these things just out of 
you know their 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 ideas or their dream stories or things like that, and they put it in the realm of I've just created a fiction story. It's like that's like they're they're missing something that's really essential um, in in really good fantasy stories, really good fairy. He, and he would have considered this a fairy story, which is crazy to think about. Right? We think of it as an epic, right? Um, but he was really creating a myth, a mythology, to kind of like a, a European mythology or English mythology that he saw really working in the real world, right? So this isn't a work of fiction for him. This is like fiction and fantasy overlaying true truth and ideas and reality as a whole. In fact, I remember you know, reading, reading his on fairy stories and he talked about one of the things that happened when modernism really came in the world of production development and, and all that, you know, is basically there was no there was no more room for elves and for humans. So elves left, you know. And of course he's talking about this in the broader literary genre and the fantasy and the mythic genre of we don't actually have space in our world because we're so dominated by humans to even have it be to, to allow room for enchantment, you know, which I think is true, especially now, like, you know, trees are utility, you know, we make all sorts of things out of this, but for Tolkien, like, the Ents were like, there's, there's magic in the trees, you know, and, you know, there, the idea of talking to animals and being able to commune with nature was a big part of something that was in his writing, but I think he was seeing that as stripped away from this, so... I, th those are just like some kind of some intro introductory thoughts as we come to this. But for those of you, how many of you guys have read Lord of the Rings before? Has everybody seen the movies? Everybody seen, everybody seen the movies? Just a couple weeks ago. Oh my gosh! Hey, hey, hey! Cool. Um, what are what are you what are you coming to this book with? What kind of preconceptions? You know, ideas, uh, questions. Of all the images of the movie, the movies. Yeah. And then, certain, like today, I said to Wes, I'm like, well, I'm a little disappointed and disenchanted now that Arwen did not take Frodo. <laughs> it was subdued. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it's way more romantic the other way. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, I, I'm sure I, I read The Fellowship of the Ring in college. But I don't remember. I don't remember anything that I felt when I read. I remember what I felt when I read Two Towers. Yeah. Boredom. But <laughs> the first one, I remember enjoying it. Uh, yeah. So it's it's hard to like detach yourself from images unless they give you unless he's describing something like uh, the the dwarf. Um, Gloin? Gloin? Gimli. No. In the Hobbit. No, in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. The first yeah, yeah. Gwen, is that his name? Yeah. The first one he talks to, and it's like this. He talks about his white beard and his white, and it's like because I'm not familiar with that character, not that I remember. And I was like, oh, I can imagine him. And I don't remember seeing him in the movie, so he was <laughs> didn't pay attention. They talked about it, but but I was like able to actually like create him in my mind, where it's hard to detach myself from the images of the movies. I think that we're, you, you, you nailed it, we, we have been disenchanted 
Um, I listened to an essay that Lewis talked about where he was talking about there is uh, before enchantment, there's enchantment, there's disenchantment, there's re-enchantment. And that's, that's the, the flow of life, how it goes. And we're in the age of disenchantment, and it came from modernism, and it came from scientism and naturalism. But what, what else could we come to, right? If we're just physical matter, we don't have room for mythologies and myths because that's a waste of space and waste of time. We have to be efficient. We have to, you know, we have to be streamlined and all this. And so there's no room for that. But what we find is we're starving for it. And when somebody goes through and creates a, a movie that hits on all the, the things that we're starving for, writes a book about a boy wizard with a scar on his, on his head, suddenly it's a billion dollar industry because we didn't know we needed it and we were just we were aching to have to be enchanted. Um, and so when I come to this, after having read On Fairy and, and On Fairy Stories and On Stories and all this stuff, um, and knowing how the story writing works, As, as, as Peterson, Jordan Peterson says, if you know the end of the story before you write it, it's propaganda. When stories like this bubble out of a person, there's something magical about it. Lewis got an image of a fawn carrying packages in a, in a line, and it took him like 10 years to get the, the, the line which will work. He didn't set out to, to write a, a Christology or some kind of uh, allegory of Christ. It just came to him. Harry Potter came to uh, Rowling. The, the story of the Hobbit, you know, uh, came to him and you go, there's something to this nave, if you will, like this bubbling out and just allowing yourself to be a, a conduit or a vessel for myth-making. Um, I tell people a lot of times, I, I do some writing. What's, what's interesting about this is I'm, I'm writing a story right now, and um, I had a character just make themselves known in the story I was writing, and it was supposed to be an auxiliary character, instead of like, who's this guy? Oh, he has a part to play, and suddenly, he starts doing things, I'm like, what's this guy doing? And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm literally transcribing what, what this character's doing. And then another character popped up, that. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was Jermaine, the environment created the character. The other characters I brought into the world from outside and said, because I'm writing sort of historical like, fiction thing, and so some of the characters are already, they're already real, they're already there. And so I'm just manipulating them a little bit and trying to push them in certain ways and see how they react. But these characters said, I'm here, like, oh my gosh. It's like the man who invented Christmas. Like the man who Christmas, you know, Dickens. Dickens did the same thing. He said his, he said his characters would do things that he, wouldn't predict they would do, and they, they started acting certain ways. It's like they have their own consciousness, they have their own wills, they have their own. It's like, oh. Um, yeah, that just side note. That's the, the guy who uh, plays Matthew Crawley and Doug Abbey stars in the room. I can't think of his name right now. Dan, Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens. His characters show up while he's writing, and it's just like, it's so good. So if you, like, if you love the process of writing 
fiction story kind of. But that's what Randy's talking about here is he's talking about what Lewis talks about as atmosphere, right? Good readers and good writers, atmosphere. So Tolkien spends years and years and years creating all of the frameworks, the infrastructure to allow his atmosphere to take place. So inside of that, he can release Gandalfs and he can release all these characters and, and let them play out. Um, and it's, he's the master. He's, he's the master of, of this. And so um, as far as world building is, he, he dwarfs Lewis in world building. Um, Lewis does some other things better than, than Tolkien, but Tolkien, as far as myth-making, is the master which we all look up to and go, this is how it's done. If you have the patience to create languages and backstories and creation stories and uh, histories and myths, and, uh, it, it's, it's incredible. So what, what Randy wanted to do tonight was he wanted to talk about myth. We wanted to talk about the myth building and not get into this, not so much get into the story as get into the, the structure, the foundation of, of what this is. So, um, what, what what is your initial take on on the world that Tolkien built? I've already built it up. You can say I think you're full of it. That's fine. What, what's your take on on the story as you're reading it compared to other other myths that you've read? I think one of the biggest things I've taken, especially from this one, but also from The Hobbit, is like the creativity of them giving the history within the world through song, through story, poetry, primarily with the hobbits, but with elves and dwarves. Like, you don't know, like, there's a whole back history at just the start of the story that is a framework of, like, that led up to where they are at that point. So, like, I just finished a couple of chapters where they're talking about um, some of the first wars before even Sauron and Mordor was a, an issue. Like, the one that he, that he was the servant for. And so for me, I think it's one of those things, like, just creating that history. They, we're just coming in, we're like, okay, what else do I need to read before to get me up to, up to speed where they're at? It's, it's just amazing. So... I'll throw this question out because I mentioned it last time, but everybody was paying attention last time. Why are songs and poems important in mythology, in myth making? Doesn't it give you a sense of history of the people and the feel of what they care about? And what That's how think? history was transmitted right, right. for ages and ages and ages before we had written history. Yes. The songs and the stories. Yes. And so poetry is is an articulation of meditation and contemplation of society and your place in it, trying to find your way. So if there is mythologies, these things, so if there are statements about society that are passed down, these statements have been created and distilled into poetic forms, so they're easily passed down and transmitted. So you're looking at this thing is true throughout, it transcends history that connects history together. So. Tolkien's entire universe is connected through the threads of poetry, right? There's also identity mm -hmm. distinctions there too, because you'll notice in things like this, but also in you know other cultures that have created, you know, historically, there's there's 
distinctions in the songs formed themselves, you know, so in a story like this, the Hobbit songs, you know, they'll be like, oh, we created a song that's kind of very Hobbitish, you know, it's yes. just like the, you know, but then the elves songs are very different, right, or then the songs that come from the goblins and the orcs and stuff like that are very different as well, right, you look historically and you're like, okay, well, African American song, you know, songs were, were very different, you know, but that was a big part of their history, but it's also even still through today, you know, the ability to create rhymes and how rap music is developed and so forth connects historically with, with a group of people. Yeah. So. I can't figure out, I'm always trying to imagine how in the world, of course this is from 21st century, but how in the world he found time to do all the things that he did, any of them really, I mean, like, they're all going to pubs all the time, drinking beer, I think that's the key. Teaching. That's, the key. that's definitely the key. We need more pints. We need we need more ale. We need more ale and more cider. I just cannot like. And granted, they didn't have iPhones and or cell phones and television. Well, what did you do on your when when the the dons were sick and the professors were sick? What did they do? They they read. Like they stayed home and they they read detective. Books. He's creating languages so and his, art, and but, I just so, like, definitely have a unique capacity. No. But think about this. So if, so has anybody here gone to the the uh, the history of the maker Tolkien exhibit? Has anybody gone to that? It, Nobody got that blessing. We, we were able to go to that. And what was incredible was you actually see a newspaper. Where he was doing a crossword and, and, and did some doodles like doodles. smile or something, <laughs> you know. He has a, so this was just bubbling out of him, and so all the time, like he, he just started. Drew, he drew on everything. Yeah, I just I, I'm like it blows my mind, and I'm over here like oh, I don't have time to meet up with people. I'm like, <laughs> he's creating entire languages and worlds, and I just blows my mind. I just he's better than us. He is. He's better than us. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Do you suppose he lived in his head an awful lot? Like, would he been an interesting conversationalist? Sure, he had a lot going on, but it was so much in here, and it was so focused on it. Like, could he? My experience with uh, the higher intellects is that they 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 can talk about one or two things, but yeah. they're pretty boring. Yeah. He weren't. He wasn't. As Thanks, Randy. From what you're describing and what I've read, I just think he's the dude that lived in his head. But he was his. People didn't like, people got bored in his lectures, for instance. And then Lewis's, they lined up because mm -hmm. he's funny. Mm -hmm. So Lewis was funny. Now they all were good friends, so I don't know, like, I think because they were talking about their topic. Tolkien and everybody would tell Lewis, basically, he said, I, I would go on and talk more about this. And they're like, God, can we get him to shut up, basically, is what, is what the, the English were like. Put a cap on it, you know, but uh, Lewis? on Lewis, yeah, I guess. Although he didn't talk about his personal stuff. No, no, he just talks. Classic English. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for that, though, because you get the sense, like, it doesn't feel like he's he's creating this for you to read. It's almost like he's so into it. Like, there was a part, I was laughing today because there was a part where he was referencing, like, the stars, and he put a footnote to describe like what he was talking about. It was almost like he was just so into the story. He was like sickle and blah blah blah. Yeah. And then he was like, oh wait, I guess I should tell them what that is. And, like <laughs> like you could have easily worked that just into a sentence, but instead he was just like so into it himself. Well and that's part of this, right? Is that for for somebody like Tolkien, the fact that they're still publishing new stuff 
from him, you know, like he only published this and like me, you know, maybe trying to get to somewhere early and publish, but you know, really not. So like the fact that they're still public, it's like he had written all this stuff and then stuffed it in drawers and you know, created this world on the side. And it really was an expression of world creation for him, you know. The Hobbit was the only thing that he could put out in terms of this and then, you know, it just got picked up and they were like, what can you do sequels? But he had already been working on this stuff for decades before yeah. this stuff came out. Did he write The Hobbit before Lord of the Rings? Yep. Mm -hmm. But he had written a whole lot of this kind of stuff and like the backstory of Middle Earth even during the war. And I think that's probably pretty signifying as like he was writing some of this stuff in the trenches and stuff like that. So there's definitely a survival mechanism towards of world creation and imagination. Yeah. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Part of what he did, but clearly it was something that, when, at least when he started, it was for him. And probably went along, it was still for him. You know? Man, yeah, Which I think it's really cool because the modern approach towards this stuff is we really write for other people. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. I mean, like, writing during the war, though, like that that was his way of escaping. Yeah. It's like, if I'm going to be in a living hell, yeah. I might as well make my own living hell yeah. and characters along with it. Yeah. So we're invited into this, we're, we're, but it wasn't for us. It's, it's uh, like Lewis talks about the gods having a conversation that we can listen to. It's not for us, right. but we, we can hear it. Yeah, and he talks about escapism in the on various stories, and basically saying you know escapism gets a bad rap, but actually escapism is a means of survival for a lot of people. Yeah. The danger is if you're escaping into something that's not real, or you're escaping into something that is real. You know, so for him, this is the this is I think just the distinction between this and a lot of other works of fiction. You have to approach this in a sense of. This is a this is a real story. Frodo didn't exist, Gandalf didn't, you know, like not historically, but this is still a real story. And then I think that gives you an appreciation for things like Iliad and Odyssey being a real story, you know, Epic of Gilgamesh being a real story, and broadening our conception of what is real rather than, you know, Lewis, right, lies breathed through silver, you know. And he was like, oh, that's what Lewis called all this stuff was lies breathed through silver and Tolkien challenged him that that's not that's not the right way and Lewis changed it and said that history actually doesn't get it right the poets actually get history more right than the historians get it though they tell more lies they actually the poets actually get it more correct in the end than the historians do 
So Lewis did change his tune in the end to, to putting mythology on a higher plane than than uh, just just uh, dry facts. So a question I would ask is like, you know, if we approach if we approach stories or certain stories like this or like other ones as real, what does that what does that change? How does that yeah. does that change the way that we approach the world? How does the world look at this kind of stuff? You know. When I, when I was a kid, we read we read the Greek, Roman, Norse uh, gods. I mean, that was just standard stuff. That's what you did. Um, the red, blue, green fairy tales, like this was mother's milk. This is what you did. But our understanding, like I was able to understand all of that because our culture is, is Greek or Roman. So there's no, even though I'm not sure, like, adultery or fornication was. It didn't really matter because it's still all things that I can understand as a kid. When I was 16, I read Les Miserables and my brother-in-law Joel said, well, if you can read that, you should be reading these. And so then I started reading it and I did not appreciate, okay? Because this is not based on something, a world that I understand. So you asked, like, how are you coming into it? I came into it with the assumption that I, if I can read like this, I can read that, right? Yeah. Not, a, not a problem. But I don't have any way to understand the world that he's talking about. And so that's always been a struggle for me as opposed to like, you know, going up into the space of, wow, like I'm up here and I'm like in my imagination and it's sparking all these things. It did do that, but I didn't have enough tangible for me to fall in love with it, I guess. And that's always been something that, I read this because I love Joel, but I I never did fall in love with it. My son read it all as a 12, 13 year old and he's um, like, uh, he went to Papua New Guinea and these are the books that he took so that he could reread them. So he did what, like the things that you've been describing, he fell into this world, he went down the hobbit hole, He's never come back. He loves it. <laughs> but I, and I, I feel kind of jealous. I'll just be honest with you. I feel jealous because this is what it is, right? What, do you, what, do you, what is it about? Because I, I love Lake Mills too and the world that it creates and stuff yeah. like that. What is it? What is the big. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. What is it about that world? Next, makes you want to keep turning the pages beyond what is comprehensible. Because that I mean, you're talking there, seven, you know, 18th century France, you know, and it's like pages and pages and pages of descriptions of the sewage lines, of, you know, and so a lot of people would look at the blame is and say, I don't understand this. Yeah, like I get to become them and 
how can like how can you ever put it down? Because that would be putting meat out, and it's totally an escapism, like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because the characters in there too. I mean, there's there's a lot of those character traits that you're like, this isn't the real. This isn't how real people act. You know, like you know. But I want. It's very romantic. I mean, it's obviously romantic literature. You know, in, in the extreme and the ideals and the, the ideal real characters and all this kind of stuff. And that's been you know philosophically and socially been folkles and romanticism. You know, as well. So it's like Victor Hugo didn't paint a real world picture either, yet some of us find ourselves in that. This isn't the real world either, yet some of us find ourselves in that, and yet some people find themselves in other genres. So is this a, Rainy, we talked a long time ago, we were about atmosphere, yeah. about kids uh, being trained, like walking up a mountain, like you get long you need capacity for certain things and there because you you said something very interesting i was able to construct the world based on what you knew about the world inside that book he, he allowed you gave you the space to create that world the syntax and sentence structures and, and materials that tolkien offers were foreign to you and it was it, it, am, I, am i correct in that like it was it was different so you're like What's this? And it's you know it's an elven hammer. And you're like I've never seen this before. I don't I don't yeah. even know what to do with this. Yeah. Where Les Mis brought you everything was there, and you were able to go oh this 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 this, yeah. and you're able to piece it together. Yeah. I really need I need the tangible, and I am yeah. very envious of the fact that somebody can take elven hammer and in the description of it, and that becomes alive to them. And I can't I can't do that, and I'm, I don't want to do it. Okay, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> but but I I really want to try again. Right. Yeah. So that's that's you ask how are you going into it? I think there's also something to be said about uh, one of my favorite authors is Brian Jakes who wrote the Red Wall series. And one of them, he used to have um, he would answer some questions and so many things. He's famous for writing a book about anthropomorphized animals. And someone asked him, do the animals walk on two feet or four feet? And he said, well, what do you want? <laughs> you know, like, there's also that, that room of sometimes as a reader, you have to say, four feet don't work for me. Two feet works better. Like, and you just have to make that adjustment. Um, and so there's also, like, I think that there's that part of it, too, where you're like, I can't handle that. Sure. I'm going with it. <laughs> yeah. We all bring our own worlds into whatever world we're reading and you know, either accommodate to make a fix, you know, or make a fit, or you know, or, or we find ourselves wholly involved in that. But there are even things in Lord of the Rings where I'm like, I can do without the songs, you know. I'm just not a big fan of that, you know. But it's because I've just never been into that kind of stuff. You know, I won't watch films with that kind of stuff. So that's something that I'm like, I'll accommodate the story to me in that sense. Um, but there's that challenge then too, where I'm like, should I be accommodating myself to the story? Am I missing something there? And I think with things like, you know, pride and prejudice. <laughs> dislike that story. Wow. So, I love that story. But it's on my list of books to read that I have to read, and I'm like, I, 
read it, you know, kind of read it in high school, but you just you know, know. Once. <laughs> if I come to that again, how can I approach this book to try and accommodate myself? Well, I, you know, when I was when I was younger, even today, I, I I remember trying to get into Sherlock Holmes, and I couldn't do it when I was younger. And uh, Agatha Christie, I just I would try to get into the books, and I didn't have I didn't have some sort of life experience. I didn't have something, and I tried four or five times, and then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read it. I was bored one day, and it became my favorite book afterwards. It's true. Something unlocks. And it's like there's the, you keep going at it, and like. Oh, I got the syntax this time. Oh, I figured out how he constructs his sentences. Now oh, I see what he's doing there, or see what she's doing there, and it just kicks in. So hopefully this will be the time. It's like I remember reading Severe Mercy. I think yeah. When I, was, I tried reading it when I was in college, and I was like, I couldn't. I, I was, it blows my mind too because when I read it, whatever it was, ten years ago, eight years ago, I'm like weeping through the entire book. Cannot leave the book. And I'm like. What kind of stone, cold-hearted robot was I in college that I could not enjoy Severe Mercy then? But I think there were life experiences I had to go through, thing, other books I had to read before I could fully appreciate Severe Mercy later on. And I think that sometimes it just happens. It's like one day you say, I hate I hate fantasy or I, whatever genre it is, and you're just like, Ugh, or I hate this author. And then one day you pick it up and you're like, oh. Good. But very, very, there are very few books in the entire world that are self-contained, self-closed systems like like Lord of the Rings is. It doesn't need your experience to exist. You it, said it doesn't need you. It's amazing how people forgive the songs. People don't like the songs because it's Tolkien. Yeah. And I'm like, I think it's true because we're like we respect him, yeah. and we're Go like ahead. those songs are fine. <laughs> Keep them in there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to read? Over any of the chapters, the poem. Oh, the poem. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, we get to, I was gonna kind of bring that up as the next thing there. Okay. Like, I think one of the things that you're saying, Nina, is you know, as we approach stories differently at different periods in our life, I would imagine some of that is not just based on personality, but the questions that we're facing in our life yeah. at any given time. And of course, you know, what you're dealing with at 13 versus 30, you know, it's very different much less 60 and so the the con the genre of myth which is a shift for people sometimes some people who have read this casually at different periods in their life and it's just a fiction story but him painting this out as myth alongside the Iliad and the Odyssey and other kind of cultural myths um, I think poses different questions or he's trying to get at something different than some other stories are you know where it's like, you'll have in other stories kind of specific questions to that story or about specific that, to that world, or your, who you are as a person. <laughs> He's trying to answer some very stark universal questions. Um, and I'm kind of just want to throw this out for those who have already started this or have read this. What are the, what are the big myth questions that you find in myths? And have you, how have you seen Tolkien maybe even just in the first chapters start to address some of those. How's the world created? Is that a question? Yeah. Because you did, you did touch on the, is it Elrond? 
you act like you were there. Yeah. It's like, oh, I've, I've been through three great eras. Yeah. And, um, and back to the time where all things began with this person. And I was like, yeah. oh, he's already, he's, he's got that, you know, he has Silmarillion too. And sure. Anyways. Yeah, so Elrond was there, you know, as, a, as a, he's kind of like the grandfather in the whole story that was there before everybody else has gotten there. He's able to speak some wisdom in this world. And he's saying, you know, I, I come from a world in which there was no sun and there was no moon, but there was light. You know, and I'm like, that is like just first couple days of creation. First couple days of creation right there, you know. And then there's this idea of like, well, you know, this question of what happened, you know. Like, not only why do we have a, he's explaining to some extent why we have a sun and a moon, which is also what Genesis does and other myths do. Why do we have these floating things in the sky? Why do we have these concepts? But he's speaking of primordial time that doesn't exist. So it's like, you know, that's a question that's there. Why, why, why is the world the way that it is? You know? I, I think something else, I, I, I liked what he hit when he was talking about, uh, Legolas was talking about time. Because uh, uh, it was Samwise said, if if I'm not wrong, uh, simply either the moon's doing something weird, or we were in Rivendell a lot longer than we than we thought we were going to be, because the moon should be at a different phase right now. And what Legolas talks about, time moves differently for for the elves, yeah. and it's both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. It moves fast and slow because we. One of the things that, that we keep being promised is immortality in, in this physical world. He's yeah. like, it's almost, you wouldn't want immortality in, in this world because it's, it's not the blessing you think it is uh, in that sense. So there's, uh, I, I like just thinking about that for a minute going, he's showing you this is what an immortal being would be like. And look at, and there's, here's the struggle. So you can actually apply that to yeah. Do I trust Hitler to be the immortal? You know, do I trust, or is maybe death a mercy, a severe mercy for us? You know. So. What other like questions does myth kind of raise? Origin. Origin. You know, the origin of man. The origin. Uh, I mean, you know, they're you know, like borrow, borrow, or like one of those things, like. When I was reading that a long time ago, it was like always one of those like things I never really got. Like it was just like okay, I kind of get the point here, but like there's so much of it that goes out, you know, went over my head. Um, but that, that origin of like who are they? What are they doing there? Yeah. That whole like, idea. What is what is the natural state of things too in creation? I mean, you get the sense that the Shire has been preserved from mm. the corruption that's kind of at its boundaries there. So he's dealing with this question too of like, you know, we still have these little pockets in the world that have been untouched <coughs> or pure in their essence, and yet, yeah. you know, as the world continues to progress forward and evil gets closer and closer, it's even going to take those over. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I guess one of those mythological elements that's incredibly present in his writings was good and evil, mm -hmm. uh, moral and immoral, light and dark, uh, <laughs> innocent versus cruelty. And uh, I don't know if it's in, the, I think it's in the first ten chapters. Did you guys go through the scene between Gandalf and Saruman by chance? I haven't. Not yet. 
No, it's oh, not, it's not yet. Okay. It's at least not up to, I just include chapters 1 through 12, and they're still kind of wondering where he is. So. Well, I won't go into that just yet, but I think maybe that's something for next week. There's a really, I think, important thing in that exchange between, uh, and especially like the concept of meaning and yeah. purpose. Uh, purpose is a big yeah. one. Purpose, so duty, how did everything? How did everything begin? Yeah. Where did you know what went wrong? You know, how does evil fit into that? Why are we here? You know, it's like myth meets it's a big myth question. Yes. Will will good or will evil win? Yeah. It's always one of the questions. So what and is then, the fate of it all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do the gods care? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I one of the things I struggle with. I Where's the gods? Yeah. Like, do they care? We miss He's in, the, he's in the other books. <laughs> but actually, that's not true because there, there is this continual motive of you know things like you were meant to have the ring. You know, yes. Bilbo was meant to have the ring, and once you set on the road, you know, like you know, yeah, who was talking about that? You're you're being swept along. Yeah. Who was t- having that conversation? Was it was Gandalf? Gandalf. Gandalf. There's this continual God that's behind everything, where there's purpose and stuff like that that's there. But it's, but I do like the fact that it's not super explicit in this. I know you like it, and I don't like it. I want. Where is he? Like I keep thinking, if I keep peeling it back, I'm gonna find him. Well, that's the Odyssey. (laughs) That's the Odyssey, which is where is God in in the struggles? You know, there's two types of silences, right? There's a silence where something is absent, absent, and there's it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Silence where something's ubiquitous. And if something is ubiquitous and everything has its light because that thing exists... You can't see it. Like, you can't look into the sun, right, because it burn your eyes. But by the sun, you see everything else. But the sun is irrelevant, right, because it's ubiquitous. And the other silence is it's absent. And so both, like, Lewis very rarely ever mentions God in a lot of his fiction. Tolkien doesn't because, to them, it's ubiquitous. It is, it is the foundation and the atmosphere by which everything else was and has its being. It is very exciting. I mean, it does make it really exciting for me because I'm constantly looking to make the connections. Well, you don't have a god of the machine in the sense of, like, he's going to be the thing that's going to come in and save the day, you know, or it's all going to work out just fine. This is just like Frozen. It's just like Frozen, yeah, because the answer is not God, it's them. <laughs> just like Wes's least favorite thing in the world, Frozen. I mean, I think he, he really plays with the idea that there is a real struggle and we have to treat the struggle yeah. as a real struggle instead of saying everything's going to be all fine. You know, God 
Lugatar, you know, is sovereign. It's like there is an assurance. These guys, there is an assurance of of God's providence over it all, but yet you still have characters that die. You still have tragedies. You still have pain. You still have suffering, and that becomes especially if you get outside of this and this other stuff. You're like, gosh, man, he really. Which I think probably comes from things like war, you know, yeah. for him experientially. Like, yeah. he was one of five friends who survived World War One, and the rest of his friends died, you know? So it's like, how do you see providence in that, and yet at the same time recognize the atrocity and death and tragedy of the world? Can we say that one of the things, as you're talking about this, one of the things that, that I always see in this movie, and it's, it has a lot of humility in it, is that it is more times than not found in the weakness of the character yeah. rather than in the strength of the character. We, Because we see, as with Saruman, we see the strength and we see power and we see on Sauron, we see those are not the things that win. Yeah. And so in, in life, more times than not, I'll, when, when things are the bleakest and the darkest, I'll, I'll tell the kids, or I was like, you know what, guys, there's two hobbits running around right now. They got a ring. I don't know what, I don't know where they are, but they got a ring somewhere, and I'm just, I'm just, let's buy them a little more time, you know. And just because it's through the week, I think that offers us that we don't have to be in control of everything. Something else is in control. Like I said, the ring found Frodo. The ring found these people. You know, this, uh, not the ring found, but the the ring was found by Frodo. Was supposed to be found by, and so all these, you see, but it's weak. It's it's the weakness. And God says it's through your weakness, not through your strength. I, that's, I feel like I relate, maybe this is most people, but I relate the most, in a sense, to Frodo and not the men, not the humans, but the hobbits. Frodo more, maybe Sam, but like they're, Frodo's like, I wish, I wish I'd never, and sometimes he's like, I wish I'd never started this journey. I wish this, and you know, this hadn't fallen to me. And it just reminds me so much how many times in my life I'm like, you know, if I surrender everything to God, he's, I'm obviously going to have to be a martyr. I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to have to die. <laughs> like, I'll be part of the Voice of the Martyrs radio broadcast. <laughs> and, um, but I'm always, it all, when I'm reading, even today when I was listening, and I was just like, and he's questioning, and, you know, and feeling scared of the journey. It's so heavy. <laughs> And he knew he had to do it, but he didn't want it, but he has to do it. And I'm just here like, why? Well, I understand those feelings so much because, and I'm like, would I be able to take on that kind of burden? Basically, the world's, the world depends on you in a sense. Um, or you, you, you have to be strong enough not to succumb to the power of the ring. You see everyone around you succumbing to the ring. How am I strong enough to not succumb to this power? And, um, I don't know, I really relate to his struggles, although I feel like he's much more bold and willing to move forward, despite the <laughs> fact that he literally, gosh, those black riders show up a ton. <laughs> I was like, give me a break. <laughs> but I'm just like, how do you keep going? You know, and again, these stories are written, I think, to inspire us, too, and to help give us courage when we, when we feel none. But, you know, because you feel like it's so real when you're in it. But, I don't know. Just relating right. very much to Frodo. So, so those are there's some other elements of myth there that you have is you know the hero, but you have duty, you know mm -hmm. human nature, right? And it's like you know you don't want to do this, but there's there's a tookish nature in you, you know, <laughs> and it's like you know 
do we all have a Turkish nature in us you know, when, when necessary? Um, so those things are yeah. all over this. The nature, you know, the question of the Black Riders too is like, what is the nature of temptation and, and sin and corruption when it overtakes us? And I, the idea of being dead and alive at the same time is, you know, I don't think he's using proper allegory here, but it is this almost this thing of they gave into temptation, man, you know, as they say at the beginning, this, you know, we're weak hearted, we give in to temptation. It's yeah. like there's this warning there that we could all become nascal, you know. You even look at Bilbo too, and it's like eventually it would have taken over him too, just like it did with Gollum, you know. So there's this conviction here that we're all corruptible. You know, even the hero. I like that they describe the horses like those are. I didn't know, know the answer to that question. And he was like, "Oh no, those are real horses. They're not dead. They're alive, but they've been trained to be evil from birth." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, there's another element in there, because yeah. they're ridden by these supernatural beings, more or less, and yet they are very real." Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah, same thing with orcs. I mean, they were elves, you know, in in the story. You know, that's, that's where the orcs came from, is that they were actually elves that were basically tortured and tortured and tortured, and then, you know, you have this spawn that's demonic, you know, basically. But that has no no free will capacity. They just do what they're told in the name of evil, you know. But there's, no, you know, basically says they're dumb, stupid creatures that just have conscious, you know, some kind of conscious or sentience to them. But there's no redeeming qualities that mean that, which again is just... Are they yeah. as gross? Are they described as gross as they are depicted in the movies? Uh, I think it's probably so. I, don't, I, don't uh, I read something actually most recently, just because like where I started reading, it, I'm starting to get a lot of ads and stuff on my social media <laughs> to go down the, the hobby hole more. But some people were talking about relating the elves becoming orcs, similar to Native American mythology of. I think it's the Wendigo, where it was a man who was lost in the woods and like had to suffer and in order to survive had to eat man flesh that changed into a monster. And they somebody pointed out like, well what about if this happened to the elves where they're these almost pure beings, like they focus more on peace and knowledge. And they've had to succumb, succumb to violence and like more animalistic nature. They just warped their mind. That their in, their natural instincts just couldn't handle it. Like they're they couldn't handle it. So the fact that their mind got twisted and they made their body and everything succumb to that, becoming a monster. Sounds like Gollum. Mm -hmm. Well, like they're the, the physical. What? Representation. Bilbo looked like when he yeah. started to succumb. So in 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 comic books or in any kind of uh, any kind of fiction, you the the character is the embodiment. It is the fleshed out version of whatever it is. So if you take a being who consistently aims at the wrong thing and consistently allows uh, his base desires or her base desires to drive them. You're not going to be an optimal flourishing human being. You're going to be a suboptimal human being. A suboptimal human being's flesh even begins to show the suboptimization of of the choices that they've made. And so, if you do that over generations and pass that DNA down, that's damaged. 
you know, he definitely gives us something like that, I think. Yeah. I missed that whole thing, so. Yep. I don't know where you are. We'll never any other, any other things about Tolkien had just even wrote this thing called Mythopoeia, in, which is where he's addressing some of C.S. Lewis's whole modernism ideas of, you know, anything that doesn't fit into a scientific model is made look really nice. He called it breathed through silver, but yet still lies. And I think Tolkien wrote this poem actually to him, which has been iconic. It's a, it, it was something we probably shoot out through the whole thing, but I think there he addresses, you know, really the importance of myth and probably the, really the, you know, the, the grief of a world that's moving beyond myth, um, which I think maybe is where we are. Yeah, I think we need to be re-enchanted. Why do we have American um, Western myths anymore, or American, like myths that drive us? That's a good question. Or what do our myths look like? Well, we're in the process right now in in Western society of destroying all of the iconography of of our history, um, and I think that's to our detriment that we're going to get rid of these these pillars that we look at and call oppressive now we're going to take them down and the thing is we haven't put anything in place that can bear the same weight of a, of a society you know we take away objective reality and we've replaced it with subjective reality and go oh no it's the same it's the same thing this is a cardboard cut out of this granite pillar but it, it, it'll hold it'll hold it's like um, oh my gosh the place we went to in Alabama no, no, no. Oh, like it? No. Uh, Mercy. The book. Just, oh, uh, EJI. EJI, Equal Justice Initiative. Um, and I, have you guys, I'm, I know some of you have seen, is it called Just Mercy? Mm -hmm. The movie with uh, Michael B. Johnson. Jordan. Jordan. Not Johnson? Yeah. 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 Anyways, yeah. the book came before, obviously, and I read that book several years ago. It's very good. But um, the whole. Equal Justice Initiative, their whole purpose has been to go around mainly the South and they find the relatives of people of these men and women who were mostly hung or um, lynched and they get soil samples from the places they were and they collect them and they, and they put up plaques and stuff to memorialize, um, hey, these people were killed here, we need to remember them and we need to name their names the same, because he was inspired by the concentration camps in, um, in Germany and all over Europe, really, and he's like, they are basically making monuments. You know, they, they preserve these places as much as they can and they make monuments to remember the horrors that occurred. And um, and I think a lot of that is some some things are popular to keep right now culturally, and then others are not. But um, no, I think there's there's something to that as well because we, we need to remember the bad just as much as the good. Doesn't mean we need to praise all the bad, but. I'm trying to think of some myths that we, we, we hold. That we yeah, what do we have? Native mean, so American myths? <laughs> I feel like that'd be the closest thing, because, I mean, Western. So we're, but we're European. I mean, so what are the European myths? That's the thing, it's most, like, we're. Most of us. <laughs> where the Western culture, aside from Native American, is still relatively new in the aspect of time and society 
Like, we are still a baby compared to Europe. So we just haven't had that. And really, a lot of our culture now, when it comes to, like, American novels, it seems like a lot of it, that at least that's been picked up, is either uh, dystopian. Like, they just want the end of the world to restart it. <laughs> which, oddly enough, European coming over to America. But, or it's one of those things, it's they take what they know from European. So, Good. when Tolkien wrote this, <laughs> because he saw a deficit in, in European mythology, he was like, we don't have that. You know, the Scandinavians have that, the, you know, the Native Americans have their mythology, the, the Greeks have theirs, you know, the Romans have theirs, you know, the Chinese have their mythologies, but like England didn't really have a mythology outside of King Arthur, you know, mm -hmm. and so this was part of that was trying to create something that could be that in a certain sense, you know, it never, it could never take the same kind of level roots, but, you know, I think the fact that it's become so popular in the whole West, you know, even in the U.S., it's like, we don't have any founding myths, maybe except for micro-myths, you know, George Washington and the cherry tree and stuff like that, maybe in part because we started at the advent of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, and so, you know, our society from the, its very foundations has been built on progress and data and, you know, industrial industry and stuff like that, and so we've never really had a great patience for, for mythology and story. The closest thing we'd come to it would be the Founding Fathers, some of those, some of those stories of the Founding Fathers, Constitution yeah. and things like that. That's that doesn't go uh, Revolutionary War stories and. Uh, but do we yeah. connect back to the biblical times though? Like, as the biblical times, we have the Romans and the Greeks, and they had their gods and then their mythologies, and the mythologies connect to us. Well, it, it, so many of the mythologies yeah. connect back to having a god or a god. Right. And so for our culture, we don't. We were founded on Christian, so we have a god. So it's, I just think that's, that's the a true huge myth. part of. So we do have the true myth. There you go. But I do think that's a huge part of that. Like, how can we? Because we don't have gods and our, or, like, origins that God set out to pull, to pull on. I think that's a good point, too. I think too. our society yeah. doesn't focus on themes that are as deep anymore, though. Like, the modern, the closest thing I can think of is, like, Twilight or something else. <laughs> Marvel. Marvel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we miss but it. But we don't think about like purpose and, you know, we think about like a love story, mm -hmm. like something a little more superficial. Self-indulgent purpose. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we don't come up with And we miss stuff. an ethnic part of that, which like mm -hmm. the Jews have, you know, for example, so we connect with some of their same traditions, but they connect to it as a people, not just a demographic of being able to opt in or opt out of that, you know. Um, same thing with Native Americans or Chinese, you know, it's like there's an ethnic component that Americans generally don't have, except for maybe some of our revolutionary myths and stuff like that. And I think that does connect to things like purpose, you know. We get to adopt our own purpose. It's so not, are we the it's poor not given to us, you know. Like, hmm? Are we the poor for not having that? I mean, well, we, we pulled, we, sorry, I'm wrong, no, but, no. Uh, we, we pulled from the Greek and the Roman mythologies, and that's, we grounded our, we, we Western thought is grounded well, in those. the Founding Fathers had all of that. Yes. 
So they would have carried that on in their own writings and their own beliefs and traditions. I'd say in the last 20 years, though, there has been a, uh, an effort to to disenfranchise and disenchant everyone from mythology. Uh, hardcore. Well, and that was that was an accident. That that shouldn't <laughs> have happened, yeah. but it did. Yeah. Uh, it was something that no one. Oh, a book about wizards, no big deal, and suddenly, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. But I think I think there's an effort to disenfranchise uh, and, and get rid of mythology, and, and we do that because of modernism sterilized everything, and then postmodernism deconstructed everything, and so we have to spend the next twenty or thirty years trying to reconstruct mythologies to stabilize society, um, or. We will be dystopian. Doesn't Harry, Harry Potter proves that we need it and we long for it? I mean, if nothing else, we're aching for because it, 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 it brings you back to but art and literature. We need it. But our hodgepodge is grabbing from different mythologies mm -hmm. and trying to say, well, this is American, you know, <coughs> Americans appreciate story. You know, it's like, of course, it's gonna it's gonna be unsatisfying because we're just grabbing all sorts of things, which we do in Christianity too. It's just, you know. We're as much Greek in our Christianity as we are Jewish in our Christianity, and you know, it's a question of whether that's good for us or not. But you know, I mean, now our greatest appreciation of, of Norse mythology is in Marvel. You know, it's like we don't read it anymore. We don't learn these things anymore yeah. for the reasons that they were developed. Um, some of that, I think, is lack of patience. And, and again, some of what Tolkien is really criticizing here in, in the disenchanted world of Sauron and Saruman is everything is boiling down to utility. And Come on. mythology doesn't have utility in our world, you know? And so, therefore, you know, we adopt that early Lewisian criticism of that is it's beautiful sure but it's just lies you know so why not spend your time actually being productive doing things like building skyscrapers and getting your MBA and building businesses and all that kind of stuff you know and it's like we find out that honor yeah purpose and being so, so a lot are, of, are actually the better so I think some of like reading this story you know for for me at least has been like I lean heavily towards You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Modernist paradigm. He invites me back into a world in which modern trees are talking, you know, um, which there's, you know, there's there's magic in the sky, you know, they're seeing the, you know, seeing the, seeing the ocean, and, and, you know, things like Revelation, and, 
you know, Genesis can play with these kind of things, and I think it's like, man, when we approach Genesis, is Genesis is myth, but when we're like, no, 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 we approach that as scientific text, you know, it's like, whether or not there's scientific elements to that or not, when we're saying myth is unimportant now, it's not answering those questions, it's answering data questions, you know, it's like, gosh, we're missing the, the purpose of this. Marcus. I, no, go ahead. I'm glad you surprised you remembered my name, man. Well done. <laughs> uh, I don't know of anyone. Have you guys ever seen? So I'm sure it may sound kind of stupid, but there's a great movie that I grew up with as a kid that, like, I watched it with my wife a few months ago, and I still think it's one of the greatest movies of all time, and it's super cheesy. Uh, 1995's Tall Tale, if anyone's ever seen that movie. I know. Tall Tale with Pecos Bill? Yes, yes. Patrick Swayze's Pecos Bill. Oh, it's great. Paul Bunyan. Patrick Swayze as Cowboy. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, it's particularly like it's about a little boy who lives in a place called Paradise Valley and he's tired of living on a farmland and all this land being just a beautiful place in farmland and he wants to go where the cities are and there's this rumor of the industrial east coast coming through Paradise Valley and there's a guy named J.P. Stiles who wants to run the railroad through and bring industry and blow up the town. You know, and uh, all the farmers get together including uh, Daniel, Daniel Hackett is the main character, his father. And his father saying, no, you know, you don't see the significance of the land. You don't see the significance of beauty. And he says, yeah, whatever. This is a stupid farm. He gets in a big fight with his dad. Long story short, J.P. Stiles is coming through. He's gathering all the farmers and wanting to buy up their deeds. So a bunch of them are selling out, but his dad won't do it. And so in this like, council meeting, uh, Stiles kind of comes in force with guys with guns to get the deeds. And his dad gives Daniel the deed and says, get out of here and guard this with your life. His dad gets shot and doesn't know if he's going to make it through. So Daniel's blaming himself. He he uh, ends up falling out and just running out from his house because he's feeling awful. He got in a big fight with his dad. He passes out in this boat and then like he just starts crying and all of a sudden he falls asleep and this boat just drifts out down the river and he ends up waking up in the middle of the desert with these two guys that want to <laughs> kill him and take his stuff. And then uh, this guy comes to shoot their trigger fingers off and they run off like the the typical henchman bad guys, and kind of just he's just like, I'm Pete's Bill, I'll shoot faster, ride harder than any man, you know, it's like classic, like, 90s cheesiness, but in this way, he's like, you're not really Pecos Bill, and he's like, what you, he's like, what do you mean, I am Pecos Bill, and then they meets Paul Bunyan and John Henry, and they go on this adventure, because yeah. these are kind of like American myths and legends. That is true, and, I, yeah. we, I yeah. completely yeah. forgot about The whole that. point about this movie, it's such a great movie, yes. but it's, it's a point of, like, it questions oh, about good. what really matters in life, yeah. what's really real and substantive, and if, if you'll allow me, I hope not to go on too much further, but, um, because I know I do want to not detract from Lord of the Rings, like because as much as I like Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion really enchanted me. Because like as a kid, I grew up in like Southern California, which is a really you talk about the environment of like subjective, do whatever makes you happy. Like I grew up in that, and then you died in my twenties because of there's just nothing, I was left with nothing. And so reading as a kid, reading Tolkien, reading about the transcendent, that there was like, I, I read these stories and knew that something mattered. And not to get it so hard into like a seminary discussion, but I think Tolkien came much more alive to me after I became a Christian in my 20s because I could draw that back and read the, the Einer, which is the creation, and the song. Again, creation begins with a song. And about participation, you see this character. And Tolkien did this in an amazingly beautiful way that I don't even think he really knew the full power of that. In writing about characters, you have these the, the beautiful Valar, but you also have uh, Melkor, which means he who arises in might. 
who is the greatest of all of thou art, give with all of this, uh, all of knowledge and all of power. And what does he do with it? He longs for the power of creation in and of himself, but doesn't have that. And it's with Iluvatar, who has this secret fire, much like the Holy Spirit. And so he looks to the dark places because he doesn't believe it's with Iluvatar. But I read somewhere in another source, and this was actually something Tolkien came alive to me for a third time. That was a magical awakening this last year. Is uh, I took a class on the wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas, and I see just how much Tolkien was rooted in this view of goodness and of, of God's beauty and virtue and perfection. I guess like tying this together, because I think Wes or Randy, you guys mentioned this at one point about this dynamic of corruption, and, and I guess like, or good and evil, and like how Sauron and Saruman see this, uh, that, that they must impose their will by force, this very worldly utilitarian, this is how we're going to get things done. And I don't, I didn't want to break it, maybe we'll break next week into the Saruman point, and I'll, I'll shut up after a minute, but I guess just realizing that like Melkor, even though his desire, like in one of the appendices, talks about why he initially fell, was because he saw the beauty of Iluvatar as the culmination of all light. And he loved the light so much at first that he began to disdain anything he perceived with lesser light. Yeah. And so thus, he realizes that he can't have that fullness of the light, and he begins to do, he can't create, so he has to corrupt creation, what it is. Whereas you have, and the last thing I'll say is about like the parallel between uh, the the next most powerful Valar, which is Monaway, who is the herald of the winds. And Monaway takes Melkor's place after he falls and becomes Morgoth. But Monaway serves uh, and submits himself where Morgoth chooses to try and rule. And because he submits himself and serves, and I think there's definite parallels, and I didn't realize it so recently, between Monaway and the Archangel Michael, uh, that he serves out of love for the guitar and out of love for who he is and what is good. And so like, the, the story of the myth pulling us back mm. to a transcendent reality mm. that is a result of the outflow of God that we can interact with, that's mediated through agents, I mm. think draws us back to a very important real truth that's in the world and part of reality. So, mm. Sorry, I hope I didn't rabbit hole two or three days. By the way, don't worry about that. We do it all the time. And we always get something out of it, so mm-hmm. nearly yeah. always. Uh, I, I think like they're that's just why I love this so much and why I think we've just lost an appreciation for myth and reading this in the context of this is mythology you know this is a story within a broader mythology is really important because I think Tolkien is just reminding us like don't forget this stuff you know you build your skyscrapers and you know we get busy with all the things that we do and yet you know if we're not asking the questions why are we here who am I you know uh, you know what? Where where is evil? You know what is temptation? What is corruption? Can I? Is my temp, is my sin causing me to be dead and a lot? You know, it's like all of these things are things that he plays with. So I think it's a very, for being a fantasy story, it's very human. It's very real. And I think in that sense, like this is why I'm excited to do this this semester is really just ask that question. Like, what is real? You know, and I think he's asking that question. What? What is real? When we go into myth, yeah. the tree becomes... When you go into myth and see a tree and you come out into the world and see a tree, the tree is more treeness than it did before you went into myth. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you see the tree of Gondor, you see the ants, and then you, you come out and you see a tree and it's suddenly that tree has... It's just it's more alive, it's more real. Yeah. 
Um, and so one of the things we also have to look at is, yes, there are archetypes, yes, there are literary devices that he uses, but something that um, Lewis talks about on, uh, on stories, I think it is, actually. It's, it's on fairy stories as, as Tolkien's, right? Mm -hmm. And on stories as Lewis's essays. Very, they're very similar. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but, but Lewis talks about that a story is the sum of the sum, not a sum of the parts. He can't, so here, here is one of the major ways that the West world is being uh, disenchanted is in the literary, uh, in, in the humanities, the last 20 years, they have taken every great story and they've deconstructed it down and said, this is just this literary device, this is this thing they're using here, this is this thing, and if you put all these things together, you get a good story or you get a bad story. And Lewis is like, no, 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 no. You are not the sum of the parts, you are the sum of the sum. Mm. It has to be the whole thing. Mm. And a good story, you shouldn't see the devices you shouldn't know you're even in the world. You shouldn't know what's behind. You shouldn't know that you should be in and going, well, you know, you should be like an avatar just sucked into it. And then only after you've revisited up team 20, 30 times, do you start to look around and go, oh, wait, I never noticed that constellation. I've never noticed this. Oh, you see this? Look at this flag. But the atmosphere is so important. And I think you're right. I don't think Tolkien knew. If Tolkien got this anyway, like sometimes how stories come to me, there's no way he knew what he was doing. All that it wasn't conscious. He was just dictating. He was just going, right? There have been times I've sat down before. Uh, the kids will, I'll tell them, holding the star, guys, holding the star. And they're like, what's that? So, I have had a moment where I, I, I float off and I grab the star and I'm looking at it and suddenly <coughs> things are illuminated to me that I have no idea. There's no way I could possibly know. Holy Spirit just taking me to another place, and I start typing. And if you touch me, or you say something to me, it's gone. But once I read it after I've written it, I'm going, there's no way I wrote that. Like, I know, I, I don't, I don't, that's a way above my pay grade. Who, who wrote that? Because that wasn't me. That, this is too good. Like, this, the way this tabernacle appears, this magic appears. But the Holy Spirit, if you just become a conduit, can speak through that. And look how many people have been affected by Tolkien just allowing himself as, as Leaf. Did you hear from Leaf? We talked about him being this professor who was up in his head all the time, right? Leaf, all he wanted to do was write or paint these paintings. He just wanted to paint this painting. And he, he spent all this time painting this painting. And he's asking the question, was it worth this, me painting this painting? That was Tolkien's whole thing with this. Like his, he was so caught up in this, was it worth it? And like, what are we still doing? Well, I think we're still discussing thing. it. I think one of the great things is like, through, through Tolkien, so many, I mean, many people have testified to coming to God. And he considered this, he said, that this is fundamentally a Christian work. And they're like, oh, you mean like, you know, the works are demons and, you know, Gandalf is Jesus and stuff like that. It's like, no, no, no. Like, it's, it's all, all of the things that Christianity plays with and speaks to are contained within this, you know, temptation, sin. That's why we tell these stories over and over again. The Odyssey yeah. and stuff like that. And I think that's just, again, part of the myth. And so reading it, Again, in that context of this isn't just a fiction story; it's fantasy, but it's a story really playing with the real world through imaginative figures, which we can find ourselves in. Yep. Gives it a really fresh perspective, you know. I do have one question that I think is extremely important. Oh God. 
<laughs> How can people come to Christ with this when you have Gandalf being a wizard <laughs> and casting spells? So I think, like, this is an interesting thing. A lot of my friends who grew up Christian who weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter yep. or things like that, it's the, it's their the parents were, were fine with Lord of the Rings. We, we talk about that all the time. Because I think there's an, you have to consider an essence of what is being done. Like, I mean, most of the time, I won't say all of the time, because there are instances that there are exceptions, but most of the time when Gandalf uses magic, it's against the forces of darkness. Yep. You know, like, ultimately, when he confronts with the confronts the Balrog and Moria, it's that point of, he says, I'm a servant of the secret fire, which, if you know the expanded universe, specifically says, like, I'm a servant of Eru Lubitar, who's the greatest light and source of all things. And he's claiming this point of authority against this massive evil and darkness of this being that is a fallen being and knows that light. I mean, mm -hmm. he's, he's not saying this to someone who doesn't know. He's saying this to a being and a creature that was a result of this song, a result of this creation, who knows what that light is. And he's saying, you don't have the authority. By this authority, you shall not pass. And so there's an element yeah, of like, good. for example, is Gandalf or is the magic being used in a way to talk <laughs> or enforce one's will upon another? And if so, because I think there's a moral distinction here too. And then right? how about Saruman? Exactly. So to me, I'm like, because I am yeah. both a lover of Harry Potter and of yeah. this world. And we actually have yeah. friends literally this past week. They're like, we don't let our kids watch Harry Potter. We know you guys love it or read it. Um, but uh, but honestly, we don't know anything about it, so we just don't touch it, which that's yeah. a whole other topic. But, but I think that's an but, interesting story. But, but they also said, yeah. but we don't understand why Christians are okay with Tolkien, exactly. it, with Lord of the Rings, and they're not okay with this, because it seems like they both have wizards and magic and witches and all it's that. It's overcoming good and evil. It's but it's the honor, same exact thing. It looks different because it's packaged differently in Harry mm -hmm. Potter. You should sure. make ask this question, but... It was, more, it was more it was more satirical. Yeah, see, I will defend Harry Potter because I grew up with Harry Potter as a kid, but I yeah. still think that there's important things like themes of friendship and fellowship. There's a distinction that there is Love. a good type of, uh, and it's, it's something like, what is magic? And you go deeper into this. And there's yeah, there you go, what is magic? That's yeah. the question. Well, and it's the point of like, I don't think they're specifically talking in these stories and these narratives about physical forces of good and evil in this way because like, or particularly like, um, uh, that gets into a further conversation. I'm a huge nerd, and I love magic systems and things like that. But I, I do, I do think that there is a great something to be said that in terms of a narrative and a story and myth, something really good and substantive you can get out of something like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, and albeit different ways, they're different stories. Mm -hmm. But I, I definitely think like when people say like, here's this element of magic, so we can't touch it. It's like, all right, well, are you going to follow through with that in every single aspect of life? Because <laughs> Because I don't think consistency is there in most people. You can't watch all those Disney movies. They will make exceptions. <laughs> exactly. They'll make exceptions on some things and not others. But so, I think those lines So think about true. this for a second. So Dumbledore says that words, in my not-so-humble opinion, are the greatest source of magic that we have. Right? <laughs> and I, that stuck with me so much because I go, yeah, our words are. Because watch this. I can take someone who is so angry and malcontent towards me and have disdain and ire so much that it begins to physically change their appearance. And I can look at them and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me for that? And there can be a physiological change in that person to they, they change, uh, everything about them can change in that moment simply by me speaking words, like a spell, like saying, you know, or saying, 
God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. And then my entire life being turned upside down, desires leaving and things like this. You go, whoa, what? That's very similar. I mean, this is, this is what happens in life. Words are the only way which we express the transcendent and bring it into reality. Well, isn't that what magic does? You speak a word and bring something from, from a spell into, into your reality, whether it be a hurricane or turn somebody into something. I can use my words to turn you into something evil if you allow it to. And so that's why I think Dumbledore's right. It's the greatest source of magic that we have because our words, the Bible says that you brought out your tongue. Red James says you got to brought out your tongue. Because you, and, and Lewis talks about this in Way to Glory, he says, we help people become creatures uh, of heaven or creatures of hell by our actions and our words towards them, which I would say is a source of quote-unquote magic, in a sense. So, And that's the best part, I think, about that story particularly, is that magic isn't like, there's even the point, the mystery of it, too. Like this sense of, like, no one really knows. There are certain things you know about magic, but magic can also be unpredictable in that, mm -hmm. for great good or for great evil. Yep. And I think even those who seek great evil, like Voldemort's whole thing about his entire reason for making the Horcruxes and all these things, he's scared to death of death. I mean, like, look at Harry Potter. This is the, for people who would reject this story. This is the chosen one who's prophesied yep. to end evil. The evil <laughs> mastermind is is at this point where like he can be defeated, but he's trying everything to stop and to control and subvert everything. He's terrified of death. Like, you know, it's a sense of like, and and in the end, Harry has to die in order to save everyone through a point of what? selfless sacrifice. That's what happens. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to spoil that. Sorry. But I mean, if you think about this, that the ultimate way to save... I'm, I'm only in book two, by the way. Yeah. So. Sorry, I didn't mean to spoil that, Randy. My bad. I was like, is it a spoiler if it's been out more than five years? I, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm just, the, point, the point is, is that, like, that, that there's this... There is a, there's more substance there, I think, that if people were genuinely to consider. You could get more parallels. And is J.K. Rowling a Christian author? No, no, not by any means. But I don't, that doesn't mean that you... Like, this gets into a whole question. Like, maybe that's a question for another time about goodness and all yeah, different kinds of things. Like, like, you know, that, that I love that conversation. It's fun. But I also realize I have to close my mouth because sometimes it can get, it can get intense. So. All right. That's our, good. Our that's AC good. is off. I so feel it's like going to get hot. <laughs> I can tell. It's hot. Yeah. It feels like just like humid air blowing in now. Let's have your systems. So this is kind of, you know, setting the stage retroactively again for some of this. And I mean, all of these questions, I think, are going to come forth through this. So we're going to revisit, I think, most of these questions throughout this. But to kind of set them out at the very beginning and really contextualize this book in, you know, not just a fiction book, but a mythic book, you know, um, and playing with themes of human identity and question, you know, the big questions yeah. of theodicy of where's God and, you know, why do we suffer and what's temptation and stuff like that, I think will will follow us through the next several months of this. So, yeah. super excited to do this and uh, appreciate everybody coming. Unless yep. you got anything else to say. Uh, further up. We're going to need a different one for this one. I, if you got one, go for it. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't have one ready. One ring to rule them all. <laughs> You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.